0: Welcome to Idaho Speaks, Idaho's conservative talk show. My name is Ed Bejarana. I created Idaho Speaks to give voters access to conservative ideas. Liberal media and progressive activists are working hard to change Idaho into the next California or New York. Please share these episodes with friends and family. And let's keep Idaho, Idaho. Welcome to Idaho Speaks. Hey, thank you for tuning in and sharing these episodes. Continuing with our candidate interviews. Oh my goodness, I've met some wonderful people already. And we're just beginning. I think this is what I love most about my job. Is I get to meet people that honestly, I never would have met before. And, and don't you kind of feel like that yourself? I mean, you were, you're going to vote for them. Would you have ever met them otherwise? Think about the richness of our lives because of the new people that come in them. No, we're not probably going to be friends or go out for coffee or have dinner together and get our families together, but having that moment to experience with somebody else in the community, somebody who chose to live where we live, I you know, I just think that that brings a richness to to life. So with me in studio today, I have Randy Weslin, who is running for city council in Post Falls, Idaho. Randy, thank you so much for taking time to talk to Idaho Speaks today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So let's dive in. I, you know, I always ask the tough question. If you've listened to the show, you're ready for this. I hope. Here it comes. Who? is Randy Westland.
1: Well, let's start with the uh, the most important things. I'm a Christian. I'm a father. And my wife and I have three kids, ages six, four, and two. Our fourth child is on the way, due in November. I think next week we get to find out whether it's a boy or a girl, so we're looking forward to that.
0: Wow. that's, that's Those <laughs> are exciting moments.
1: Yes. Now, I, I've heard that it gets easier after three kids. I really hope that's true, but we're <laughs> going to find out, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to test it out.
0: <laughs> I, I can't see how that's possible, but anyway, go ahead continue. <laughs> Uh, I
1: grew up in North Carolina. My my wife and I lived in Boston for a few years um, in in the interim. When we moved out here five years ago, we had our second kid on the way. Uh, She was finishing grad school at the time. We didn't fit in culturally in Boston. We knew we couldn't live there long term. It's not really a city where you can raise a family. And then, so we, we had to decide, you know, where are we going to live in the country? And for the first time, we really felt like all the options were available to us. Before that, we always had something dictating, oh, we've got to go here, we've got to go there. And so we made this giant spreadsheet where we listed out all the different states in the country and and we rated them on gun laws and freedom and natural beauty and proximity to family. And uh, we nerded out over the whole thing. (laughs) And we settled on Idaho because her family is here. Her family goes back a few generations
0: in Idaho. And of course, she wanted to be near her mother. Yeah, they like to do that. They like to do that. Well, that's great. So let me ask specifically i mean yeah the gun laws uh, were we're christian centered and we're we're conservative but when you got here when you started uh, on the ground what what's the you know the one specific thing that you remember the most kind of leapt out at you that said this is where i want to live for me it was the sense of community um you know growing growing up
1: and being in college you don't you don't really tie into the community the way that you do when you start establishing a household and having kids. And when we were in Boston. It's very much a uh, like a transient area. There are so many colleges there. Lots of people go there, then they leave. And we had that mindset there as well. We were there for six years and we knew we're going to leave. We know we're going to leave eventually. So really, what's the point in getting to know our neighbors and really getting invested in the community? Because we doesn't feel like home. It feels like a temporary place. But when we came out here to North Idaho, the feeling was totally different. It was like this is actually a home. We chose to be here, and we're going to get to know our neighbors now, and we're gonna we're gonna get involved in the community. And we were thrilled to see that that all of that's available to us. We met some of the best people we've ever met here, and the community has just been great. And the, and the church community we plugged into, and everybody around here, uh, really fits in with our mindset about life, which was kind of made us odd in Boston, you know, having kids. And uh, my wife had other researchers in her grad school lab and they were telling her, yeah, you, you can't have kids yet. You're not, you don't have your graduate degree. And some of them were like, well, I'm going to have my one baby or my two babies, maybe after I get tenure when I'm like in my late thirties. And, and we said, no, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna have kids now. So we were the weird ones in Boston. We actually had our second kid on the way. And when we moved out here, everybody has five or six kids and we're like, oh, honey, we're behind. Yeah. We better start having some twins because I-
0: Yeah, I know some people, they have a baseball team. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, that's great. Um, and you're in tech. Now, I, you know, I have to imagine as a business owner in the tech industry, Idaho's not really known for its tech based employment um, draw. Have you, have you been able to work with the community to develop that, or have you had troubles with your business in the tech sector? Tell us just a little bit about how tech you and Post Falls are working together.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, that's a benefit to being in, in Post Falls because I don't, I don't like the standard tech company mindset. I don't like the VC world. I don't like the whole, the whole way that manages money and the way they think about developing products is all about, we're going to create something and then we're going to sell it to Microsoft or Google. And then, and then that's it. When I think about business, I think about small businesses and entrepreneurship and creating something closely held where you're not answering to VC investment where they're going to say you have to grow this much year over year and then we're going to you know, sell the business and then it's just this mad rush and then you're out. I like to think about business as building something that you care about that maybe you're going to hand down to your children. Think about this generationally. And then in terms of the business activities, like what's good for society and what's good for the community in the business and not just how am I going to make a bunch of money? That's
0: fabulous. I appreciate your, your answer there. So Why did you decide to run for city council? You're a young man, young family, business entrepreneur, you're busy enough. Why do this?
1: Um, It's definitely not something I would have ever seen myself doing. Um, I'm an introvert and an engineer kind of by nature. I've forced myself to become more of a salesman, to be an entrepreneur and, and step into that world. And I've always found more personal growth by forcing myself out of my comfort zone. But in terms of getting involved in politics, I was looking around and seeing that the country's not on a good track. And I, I think a lot of conservatives agree that America is clearly in a state of decline. And there's a lot of different opinions about why that is and where we're going and what we do about it. But when you start to see that and you think about, okay, well now I moved to a place and now this place is home to me and I want my great grandkids to be baptized at the church that I attend. I have to do something because otherwise this community's like, it's, it's going to go off the rails if something's not done about the way things are developed, because you have to have good Christian stewardship in all levels of local government so that things develop along the right path. And I, I don't think we have that now,
0: necessarily. And, you know, and that's a good point. Now, let me, let me pay devil's advocate. Let me just ask a follow-up question to that. And, I, and I'm doing this in a spirit that just recently— at the Community Library Board, there was a discussion about some cost-savings measures. And one of the ideas that came down was to close the libraries on Sunday. And I believe it was the chairman who made a statement that, well, it's the Sabbath, we shouldn't be working on the Sabbath anyway. And, and uh, you know, the the flack still hasn't finished falling on this. Um How do you square the idea of religion and politics?
1: Well, certainly in America, we don't want to be forcing religious beliefs on other people. But at the same time, if you are actually a Christian and you accept the light of Jesus into your life, that necessarily transforms everything that you do. It changes the way that you behave. It changes the way that you think about things. And of course, that's going to inform policy. And the difficulty is always going to be yeah, how do we balance everybody's freedom of religion
0: with what we believe is going to be good policy as Christians? Excellent. I appreciate that. So when elected, what personal or professional skills would you draw on to perform your duties as an elected representative?
1: I have three things that I think help me out here a lot. One is I'm an engineer, so I'm very systems oriented and detail oriented. I like efficiency. Um, that most of my companies are based around building efficiency. And when we, when I do software for a small business, it's always about how are we going to make this business more efficient? And, and and so efficiency is really key in government because that's not government's strong suit. Uh, I'm also an entrepreneur and that's forced me to think about the future a lot about vision a lot. And so I, I kind of see myself as a visionary in some sense. Not that I have all the ideas, but that I can go around collecting those ideas. And I appreciate talking about ideas. And so when I think about where the city is going, I want to think 50 years in the future because I'm thinking about generationally. I want my great grandkids to be here. And so that that vision of like, where are things going to go is is going to help there. And then the, the third area is I have some accounting expertise. I taught myself a lot of that. I'm one of the strange guys who went through the IRS tax codes and filed my own taxes by hand because I decided... I should be able to do this. If this is a just system, then a citizen should be able to figure this out. Um, I use tax software now, but that was a very informative experience. And I track my personal finances with an accounting system. And I'm very careful about that. So that means I know how to dig into a balance sheet and I can get into the nitty gritty details about how money is being spent and how funds are allocated and depreciation and capital expenses. And I understand that world.
0: That's fantastic. Excellent. I I was going to tell a story about taxes, but I think I'm just going to leave it there. In your view, what are the top three challenges currently facing post-falls, and how would you address them? The The first primary challenge is always growth. and That's everywhere in Kootenai
1: County. Growth has been happening so quickly. We're struggling with the impacts of that. Um, I think the, the way to address that is to is to say, first, you know, we, we can't stop all growth because that's not good for a city, but we also can't keep growing at the pace we've been growing because it's not sustainable. And so we have to find some middle ground where we're making trade-offs so that we're growing in ways that are healthy and good for the existing community. And And in my mind, that means, are we growing in ways that benefit families? Because the family is the fundamental unit of society. I, I don't believe it's the individual. It's the family, the household unit. And so- anything that's bad for families is going to be bad for society because families are where the next generation comes from. And so everything we do in policy should be guided by, is this good for families or bad for families? So the kind of development we should have is the kind of development that's good for families. And you can debate exactly what that is, but that's the guiding principle about when you're considering this development, if it's luxury condos, okay, that's not really family oriented. Um, If it's studio apartments, that's not really family oriented, but if it's starter homes, that's ex- that's exactly what a young family needs, and as a coincidence, that's also what uh, retirees need, who are empty nesters looking to downsize. And so there's a, there's a lot of benefit in orienting things in that direction. The second point, as an issue post falls faces, I think is the fiscal side of the uh, sort of the balance sheet and the way we've been growing and and spending money is you have to maintain all of the infrastructure that you build, and Nobody, I think, is really thinking 30 years or 50 years in the future in terms of maintenance because every mile of street that the city builds on the city's balance sheet is considered an asset. And so it's like it's not an expense to build a road. It's an asset. And sometimes that's paid for by developers and the asset is gifted to the city. And that's depreciated over, say, 40 years on the city's balance sheet. And what's not Visible is the maintenance that you're going to have on there. And especially for the first 10 or 15 years, there's really no maintenance. And so the city grows, adds a new subdivision, and there's tax revenue coming in, and there's really no maintenance. And so that looks good for the city. And they're like, oh, we have this money we can use. But then 10 or 15 years later, how are we going to pay for the expenses when we have to replace, you know, repay the city streets or replace the sewers or, or that sort of thing. So we really have to be careful about what we're committed to, because when the city expands infrastructure... It's a promise sort of in perpetuity that the city will maintain it for the citizens. And so uh, anybody involved in city government has to be very careful stewards of what exactly are we promising to do? And, and is that a legitimate thing? Can we actually do that? And then the, the third issue I think faces Post Falls is this sort of this lack of a sense of place, of a sense of um, community, because Post Falls is sort of the bedroom community for Coeur d'Alene and Spokane. And if you look at the city's Comprehensive reports—they have charts and data in there indicating that something like half the people who live in Post Falls work somewhere else, whether it's you commuting east or west, and that can be difficult because if a place is only like if a city is only somewhere you go to sleep, it doesn't have its own character, it doesn't have its own unique culture, and that doesn't give you a reason to love it or to care about it. And like if we if we want to love the city that we live in, we should be careful that we are sort of cultivating this sense of place and this sense of being. And you get that through having, you know, having beauty in the downtown area, through having local businesses that are owned by people in the community. And so we have to encourage the kind of private investment in Post Falls that creates this sense of community and
0: the sense of place so that everybody can be proud of the city they live in. That's fantastic. What a great point. Um, Because you're right. I mean, Coeur d'Alene, you look at it going back 40 years It really didn't have an identity beyond the logging and mining industries that were there. But it took the vision of leaders to say, you know what, we're going to make downtown a destination. And oh boy, I mean, we just finished the destination tourist season. And you're right, Post Falls is anticipated to be 80,000 people in not too many years from now. And to not have a cultural identity, that's, that's excellent. How would you prioritize and manage the city's budget, especially in areas that might be underfunded or overspent?
1: I think the city's been put in, uh, all cities have been put in um, a very difficult position because as conservatives, we want to keep taxes low and we want to make cities a good place for families to live. But at the same time, we've seen the housing crisis and we've seen inflation skyrocketing and... That makes it really difficult when the city has the opportunity to take its 3% raise on, on property taxes. We want to say no to that, but we also have to recognize that the, the Fed's monetary policy has created a, a very inflationary environment, and the city's expenses are all affected by inflation. And if the, even if the city does take the 3% increase to its budget, that's not enough to even keep up with inflation. And so we have to be really careful balancing that. And that's a matter of going through individual things to say, you know, hey, maybe there's something here that is publicly funded that could be offloaded onto, onto the private investment to say, you know, let, let, what can we do to encourage private investment in this area instead of making it a public expense? Or, or just saying, sometimes it's a legitimate function of government to spend public money for the common good. A good example of that is public parks. These are These are excellent things, they attract families, they help build community. And so public parks are, you know,
0: that's a good thing on the city's balance sheet. Do you have an example of something you think might be able to go from public to private?
1: Um, I, I think this idea of, of revitalizing or, or rebuilding the downtown area in Post Falls is something that both should happen and should be led by private investment. So if, like if you look at Court d'Alene, Sherman Avenue it's it's a beautiful downtown. There are businesses there right along the street. It's it's a nice place to walk around. There's a reason why tourists go there and they can see the lake and go to the resort and walk around the downtown area. And and Post Falls doesn't have anything exactly like that. We we kind of have an old historic downtown. It's not it's not the same as a, as like a Sherman Avenue in Coeur d'Alene. And I think we would benefit a lot by having something more like that. Of of let's build this sort of cultural center in, in Post Falls. But that's something that should be led by private investment by saying, hey, let's let's start talking to these private businesses to say, hey, why don't you move your business here? And we're not going to pay you any money to do it, but let's talk about the process and let's make it easier. And let's say, hey, here, here's, what, here's the vision, right? Here's what we're trying
0: to achieve. And, and then bring them in that way. Very good, very good. So- Those who are listening, they've heard me tell this story a million times. I served as a city councilor in Oregon, at Fairview, Oregon. And we always, in our newsletter, our monthly newsletter, we always asked citizens to come to city council and give us input, or we've got an important topic, we'd love to have people for public comment. So the problem was, is nobody ever came. So yes. hold that, hold that in mind. How do you plan to involve and engage the post falls community in decision-making processes?
1: I think the important thing is to have a clear vision for where we want the city to go, because you're right. People don't show up to city council meetings very often. And the reason for that is it's horribly boring. It's a what? lot of, <laughs> it's a lot of procedural <laughs> stuff. And then this guy's giving a presentation and there's kind no, of arcane say terminology. No, it's not true, Randy. <laughs> oh my goodness. And so like as a citizen, why would you get involved in that, especially when you feel like maybe your involvement doesn't have much of an effect because people will go and they'll give presentations and then um, maybe the city council ignores them or decides against, against the public comment. And so it, it is difficult to get people involved, but I think the, the importance of having a public vision, I think it really can't be stated strongly enough. Conservatives in general I think, have suffered from the lack of a positive vision for governance. I would say that conservatives have forgotten how to govern uh, because we're so focused on, like, I just want to live my life and you live your life, and we're, we're like, why are you talking to me? Like, we're going to go different ways. We're going to live our lives differently, and we're going to respect each other. And that's, that's how a lot of conservatives view the way they want to live. And, that, and the problem with that is the left doesn't think that way. They're more on the moral imperialist side. And you see that with, say, you, know, you, you will use my pronouns, you will bake the cake, you will, you, know, you will bend the knee, you will wear the mask, you will, whatever it is, pinch incense to Caesar. And they have this sort of morally imperialist vision where they, they have a moral system. I don't agree with it, but they have a moral system and an idea of right and wrong. And the left wants to impose that on people, definitely. And the right tends to sit back and say, I don't want to impose anything on anyone. So uh, as Darren Beatty said, silence is violence. will always beat, don't tread on me. And what he means by that is like the side that is on the moral imperialist track, the one that wants to dominate and win will always beat the side that just wants to sit back and be left alone. And so as conservatives, we have a challenge where we have to take up this business of governance and we have to We have to bring our unique contributions into the the civic realm and realize that, you know, our duty as citizens doesn't stop at the ballot box. We actually have to get involved. We have to participate in the government. And that, that was what the founding fathers intended when they set up our government, was for people to be participating. They didn't, you know, they didn't envision a system where everybody sits home and then mails in their ballot, you know, once a year and, and then decides, oh, that's, that's, that's it for my civic engagement, right?
0: Yeah. They didn't envision a professional political class.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and so we all, we all have this, this duty and this responsibility to get involved and, and to really help drive the vision for local politics. And I think that's something that we should be encouraging in people. And that's how we get more participation in local politics is by having that vision.
0: Let's shift to economic development and how would you work to promote and support local businesses and the community economic development as a whole? I think the key thing to realize
1: is that there are a lot of barriers to entrepreneurship right now. And as the economic situation in the United States gets uh, more, and more, more and more difficult, the barriers to entrepreneurship keep growing. And so we should be cognizant of that in our public policy, we should do everything that we can to encourage local entrepreneurship. And that means removing barriers. One of the big barriers right now is that it's so difficult to find a commercial space because the way we have everything zoned, you can only do commercial activity in certain corridors, right? Along 90, along 95 and 41. And so if you want to open a business, you have to find a commercial space and there are not many of them and you're going to be paying $8,000 a month in rent or whatever it is. And how many people who have a good idea are able to, say, quit, your, quit their jobs and then go rent this very expensive public space, maybe on a 10-year lease, to try out a business idea? And then on top of that, you have occupational licensing and all the and other taxes, and it ends up being such a, uh, such a high obstacle to starting a new business that I think it, sh- it scares a lot of people away, and they prefer the safety of their job over this high chance of financial disaster if they, if they try to to sort of uh, put their foot out there and, and go for this idea. And so there's a lot I think we can do on the local level to, um, to really remove some of those barriers. I think one would be encouraging people to start small businesses in their garages. Just to say you know, maybe there's some things in the zoning code and in city ordinances that we can relax a little bit in the name of encouraging small business entrepreneurs to get something going, you know, not becoming a nuisance to the neighborhood or anything, but just saying, you know, you, you know, empty out your garage, remodel it if you want to start your business there where it's very low risk. Maybe you do it only on the weekends and get it test it and get it going and if you're successful and it grows to a certain point okay now it's time for you to move, move into a proper commercial space but just encouraging that like yeah we want you to take the step to do this and i think that's really important because small local businesses are always the backbone of the economy it's not the big box stores it's not the walmarts and the targets and the, and the, the big stores like that and i don't think those stores are necessarily a net positive for the community compared to having sort of the small mom and pop traditional stores. Because when you have these these larger corporations and they have, um, maybe they have stores here or they have offices here, what ends up happening is is they're in some boardroom in another state or sometimes in another country, they're creating policies. And maybe it's a DEI policy or an ESG policy or, what, or a mask wearing policy. And that gets pushed down on their employees in all these states. And you end up with Idahoans who are kind of subject to the whims of whatever big corporation they happen to be working for. And then you also have the profits from that location, most of which are leaving the state and going into maybe, you know, some, um, some large fund and maybe an international fund. And you're like, okay, then now there are international investors making money off of this thing in our town. What about reinvestment? On the other hand, if you have a small local business, all of the policies that that business owner creates are created within and by the community because he's a member of the community, someone who lives here, and then makes him accountable to the community. So if people have a problem with how he runs his business, they can talk to him about it. And you know, you're know you not going to go talk to the corporate board of, of whatever it is. And then also the profit that he makes, most of that is going to be reinvested in the community. And maybe he's going to you know, invest in some other business, or he's going to patronize other local stores, or he's going to you know, maybe fix up a house down the street that's falling apart. And so the more we can do to get these local businesses, locally owned, small
0: entrepreneurship, I think that's really key. Excellent. Appreciate that. What are your views on public safety and the relationship between community and law enforcement? And I, I, I want to add to that because of the recent fire in Post Falls, fire safety.
1: Yeah, um, public safety is, is possibly the top priority. Certainly one of the few top priorities because if our values are that we want to create a city where it's a good place to raise a family, safety is probably the top priority for that. Nobody wants to raise kids in a dangerous city. And, and so maintaining public order and having that safety and, and making sure that people feel comfortable in the place where they live is, is really important. And then, as you know, as for fire, I, I, I think everybody did a, a phenomenal job fighting the fires that we had here recently. Um, obviously, that needs to be uh, kept kept pretty high on the priority list because that's a threat. It's just a threat of natural disaster here. You know, we don't have to worry about earthquakes so much here, but we've got to worry a lot about forest fires, and and so we should be uh, always aware of that danger as we're maybe setting up uh, budgets for fire departments and as we're. Uh, building relationships with these other firefighting organizations that cross state lines and, and work on these projects.
0: Now, as you were assessing the uh, the budget um, and all of the issues that you assess when you're thinking about running for office, looking specifically at public safety and, and policing, how would you rank where the funding is currently for the post-false policing? I, my understanding is that
1: we're at a pretty good place. I haven't seen any obvious issues with it. I'm obviously open to to feedback on that. If people are concerned about it, then then please let me know. Um, you know, you can't be an expert in everything. And there's, it's very likely that there are things that are issues that maybe I don't know about yet because I'm not on the city council. I'm, you know, I'm just running for it. So, um, I, you know, I, I think we're, we're probably in a pretty good place. And, and if I'm wrong about that, then please let me know.
0: All right. So um, <laughs> looking at the environment here locally, I laugh. I'm sorry. Um, those who listen to Idaho Speaks all the time, they know where I'm going with this one. Uh, looking at our current environment and our um, elected representatives, how would you handle disagreement or conflicts with other council members or city administrators? Uh,
1: Very politely. (laughs) I think that's the key with with anytime you're working with something, especially in a city government, it's a nonpartisan environment, right? There shouldn't be these strict battle lines between two sides. And so when a disagreement comes up, it's usually over something where we kind of have the same goal in mind. We have the same policies in mind. We all want the city to thrive and to do well. And maybe there are disagreements about how to accomplish that. And I think for most of that, you know, the way you settle disagreements in a government is the same way you settle disagreements in marriage. You, you sit down and you talk about it and you, you kind of really make sure you understand where everybody's coming from and you find something that works. Excellent.
0: Uh, do you have any final thought? I mean, thank you. I appreciate you coming in today, spending your time. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with the listener before we wrap up? yeah,
1: I think um I really want to underscore the the civic duty that we all have as citizens to participate in our government. Uh, you know you can't just sit back at home and expect things to continue working fine. And it's not enough to just keep the ship floating. It has to be going in a certain direction. We have to make sure that, that it's going in a direction. And we need the input and the voice of the citizens in order to make sure that we have that direction, that we're following the right star as we're as you know as we're guiding the ship.
0: How do folks learn more about you and your campaign, or heaven forbid? make a contribution.
1: Yes. My website is randyforpostfalls.com. Um, please check that out. Um, yeah, my email address is on there. You can reach out to me at any time. And if you want to invest in the kind of change that I that I believe in, then you know absolutely do that.
0: Now, Randy, for Post Falls, is that the number four or F-O-R? F-O-R. F-O-R. And I will make sure and include that link in the show notes. Well, Randy, Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We've reached the end of the episode, but not the end of the issue. Please share this episode with your friends and family and help more people add their voice to Idaho Speaks. Do you have a question or issue you'd like to share with Idaho Speaks? Visit www.idahospeaks.com and click share an issue. Your state, your voice, Idaho Speaks.